Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotuk, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them. Hello and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Mark Herman Lynch and I'm a research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. Today, we present an interview of Sharon Paul Rupry by Aruna Srivastava. In this interview, the two touch on many important BIPOC writers in the Canadian literary scene, both living and passed away. Dr. Rupry contemplates the transition from poetry to playwriting, as well as reads from her excellent poetry collections, Pressure Cooker Love Bomb and Seva. Sharon Paul discusses the academy and her anti-racist work in connection with students and activism, as well as the influence of her Sikh heritage and experience as a diasporic writer. Aruna Srivastava has spent many years working as an anti-racism educator in various community-based arts and academic contexts, focused in more recent years on the complexities and intersections of disability, illness, age, and trauma in this work. As a racialized arrivant slash settler, who has been a guest in many indigenous lands across the world, she has found a home for quite some time here in what the Blackfoot called Mokinstis in Treaty 7 territory. Aruna has, in the past 20 years or so, also been on a journey to work in alliance with Indigenous peoples. This has shown her better and wiser ways to work both within and against colonial structures, such as universities, arts institutions, and nonprofit organizations. Dr. Sharon Paul Rupry is a writer and associate professor of women's and gender studies at the University of Winnipeg. Rupry's debut collection, Seva, was shortlisted for the Stephen G. Stephenson Award for Poetry by the Alberta Literary Awards in 2015, and her most recent collection, Pressure Cooker Love Bomb, was shortlisted for the prestigious 2020 Annual Lambda Literary Awards. As an interdisciplinary humanities scholar, her research and teaching interests include Indigenous and Critical Race Feminism, Religious and Cultural Studies, and Artistic Practice. Currently, Rupry is working on a collection of essays entitled Who You Calling a Car? slash Princess. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you enjoy. I'm really happy today to be with a very good friend of mine, someone I feel like I've known forever, but it's actually been 16 years. We determined this just a few minutes ago. I'm talking today with Sharon Paul Rupri, who is not only a good friend, but an amazing writer. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. 
And I was also one of the fortunate audience members at a stage reading of her very first play selected for Theatre Calgary's 2021 Page to Stage series, the working title for which is Bollywood Basement Boutique. She is going to be the editor, upcoming editor for Contemporary Verse 2 in last year, interrupted entirely by COVID-19. Sharon Paul was the University of Calgary's writer in residence. And she had to switch from doing in-person consultations to virtual consultations, of course. And she, and this, I don't think Sharon Paul knows this, but people who were her virtual consultees spoke highly of the ways in which she was able to continue working as the writer-in-residence after we shut down the university last March. It has been over a year that we have been working from home. The gift, I suppose, of COVID-19 is that Sharon Paul has been able to stay in Calgary while she is still, <laughs> while she is still working full-time at the University of Winnipeg. And we hope, I hope that that is the case for the future, because as it turns out, Sharon Paul and I live in the same neighborhood. And so, <laughs> although we haven't seen each other for many, many, many months, it is great to know that she is living around the corner from me. I also want to say that it's very important, I think, to both Sharon Paul and myself that we recognize that both of us live as racialized settlers on Treaty 7 territory here in Calgary. The Blackfoot name for which is Mokinsis, which means the place where the elbow meets the Bow River. And it's the Bow River that Sharon Paul and I live minutes away from by foot. And we escape to if we're trying to leave home. <laughs> COVID has brought much heartache for people and the gift I mentioned earlier, as well as this opportunity to talk to Sharon, Sharon Paul virtually, because I'm spending so much time at home as I believe Sharon Paul is, this is a great gift also that Tea House has brought us. I take great comfort from the knowledge that Sharon Paul is here as an activist and as a writer. And I hope you can get a sense of her extraordinary presence and vitality in the next hour or so. So, Sharon Paul, <laughs> over to you. Well, that was really nice, Aruna. <laughs> um, I don't know why I'm, so why I'm so nervous. It's not like doing a class. All right, so I'm going if to- If you're nervous, then how come I'm not nervous? Wait a minute. <laughs> Um, I think it's because I've got all these computers and books around around me and I'm trying to negotiate the technology. It's been a while since I've actually taught a class. Because um, you're on sabbatical. I'm on sabbatical, yes. You know, these things have been hijacked. The COVID has robbed us of our sabbaticals, our much needed breaks. And the nice things that everyone said about the CDWP uh, residency was fantastic. And I was thinking about that the other day because I was, because I never got to, I never got my residency in Banff because with the, with the whole thing, you get to go to Banff for two weeks. Well, Banff is closed. The Banff Center is closed and the Leighton studios are closed. So I'm like, oh, that's really sad. And I'm still sad about it after it's such a, such a like why am I sad about this but I was like oh I was really looking forward to that just like sitting in a hut in the middle of the forest writing there's something wrong with me that that's what I'm sad about <laughs> right like well, what is that like yeah but um I'm, I'm sad that I didn't get to do that I hope I get to do it in the future yeah that's sad and I know that I don't I'm not quite sure that the new writer in residence has been able to do that either but thank you for that intro that was wonderful so I am going to start 
in the middle of my list of questions because we were talking before we started about relationships and we started in fact talking about I wouldn't exactly say influences but uh, we were talking about Sharon Sharon Prue Turner and although I'm I'm not a great believer in the anxiety of influence I do I I do believe in those connections and relationships and in rereading your work I thought about Sharon's honor poems Mm -hmm. as she called them and also about her food poems (laughs) and so what is the importance of relationship in your in your literary work but also in general in your activist work and your teaching work why do they matter to you oh oh they matter a great deal i think in terms of the second collection pressure cooker love bomb in the acknowledgments i acknowledge sharon you know she used to she used to love little hearts remember she used to she used to do that little heart thing like with her hands and she would send me actually all the she would find hearts shaped nonsense like all the things rocks and photos and leaves and she would just send them to me on on text with pictures and and I would send them back to her and I remember finding this little heart that had a nail in it it was like this little red heart and it was on a signpost and I sent it to her and she sent me another another one back and so we had been just communicating you know kind of in the last year two years of her of her illness and her and in her life and she was always she was talking we were talking about poetry here and there and she has, has been an influence of course and she has been sort of there think in terms of you know what does it mean to be a writer and a poet and activist and a teacher and all of those things all, you know all rolled up into one which you know which you are as well Aruna and for Sharon I think it was for Sharon and I it was just that kind of connection of writing things on the page that you know being being poets and she's been yeah and her work you know, towards the end of her life, I started collecting all her work. And I think it was also a little bit of grief that she was going to be gone soon, right? So I was collecting all her all her work. And I said, I sent her this email and said, Okay, Sharon, listen, I'm going to gather up all your poems, and we're going to like put them into a collection. And it, it's going to be great. And I'm sure she could read the rush of that email in, in terms of that rush of grief and love and complication, all of those kind of things. I think she probably read through that. And she's like, you know, it that would be lovely if you could put all that together. And it, it hasn't happened yet, but in reading all her collections, I read all the all the poems with the recipes in them. Yeah, all the, you know, the Grandma Joe's biscuits and the, and I didn't know everybody in her, in her family. I knew sort of her, her intimate family, but all those recipes and she just wrote them down. They were recipes and this is it. And she put them in the book. And I remember sitting there at the hospice with, with everybody and, <laughs> Graham, her son said, well, you know, oh, we should have written those recipes down. And someone said, well, they're in the, they're in the poetry collection. And he's like, well, why? They're not a secret. <laughs> they're in the poetry collection. I'm like, I'm pretty sure they're all there. And in that gathering all of all of them, right, I also started writing the matriarchal recipes in, in Pressure Cooker Love Bomb because they were related in some way. And food is vital, right? Like we all love food and we all like gather together. And that's one of the things we used to do with Sharon, right? Like Aruna, we hang out at your house and get food, make food, eat together and laugh and talk. And, you know, those were great times. And so, yeah, I think, you know, her, her hand is in the collection for sure in the second collection, Pressure Cooker Love Bomb. And I suspect, you know, she'll pop up now and again, right? Like as she will, I'm, I'm sure. I think she called them hauntings. I told her not to do that to me because I'd be scared. So <laughs> yeah. 
by I think maybe Wayman is is Wayman being haunted by her? I hope so. <laughs> that would be funny. <laughs> yeah, I think he I think he complained that he wasn't being haunted. So we'll, we'll have to we'll have to have a, a haunting party. Yeah. <laughs> what what about other uh, relationships, including community? So your books and your work in general is is so highly community oriented, and I've always been completely impressed by that. I'm, I'm introverted by nature. I think that you are completely the opposite. <laughs> and so I find that very impressive that you, you take that extroversion and you, you go outward into the world with it. And you've been like that ever since I've known you and probably since you were born. Um, <laughs> so in terms of relationship with community, how do you build that? How do you make those connections? How do you prevent yourself from being exhausted? Oh, great question. I learned it from Sharon. I've learned it from, from you as well in building community, but I think I really learned it, you know, in the, in the return of going of Winnipeg, going back to that, the institution where I grew up in. So I grew up in, well, not the institution. <laughs> I kind of did grow up at the university of Winnipeg. I really, you know, ran around that university as a young undergrad, <laughs> um, just making it my own. But at the same time, I really learned it when I went back to the university. I thought, wow, I kind of lost touch with a lot of community. And I saw it as an opportunity to re-engage with community, but also like figure out where I was needed. And what, not just me, but maybe there were other gaps. And there, there are significant gaps, I think, at, in Winnipeg, at the University of Winnipeg. There are not a lot of academics of color. There are few and far between. And in looking for community i i can see it in the students the students were gathering and organizing and but as a professor you you've got a little bit you're not quite part of that student community in that same way you have a bit more power and say and i was i'm still learning that negotiation but the there was a 50th anniversary at the university of winnipeg and you know we were being asked to think about what we could do with that money or funds and i thought well i was sitting at a table with a couple of really great scholars catherine taylor who you know lgbt act activist and writer in education and thinking with chantel dr chantel fiola who is kind of you know has become a friend and is great ally she's an 18 uh, writer and scholar and we started thinking about what we could do to fill that gap. And Catherine was talking about doing a two-spirited event, a, a two-spirited Manitoba event. And I came in and I said, well, what about adding queer people of color to that? And I had just gotten to know that community, the queer people of color community in Winnipeg. And that's when all the you know relationship building started. And it starts slowly and it starts with one person, two people. I mean, you taught me that it's through these relationships that we, we move slowly in the world. Right. And those are, those are precious things that we have to build together and it's a back and forth and it's a conversation. And so I, in doing that, that work has really fueled a lot of work going forward. The calls to conversation with two spirited queer people and allies has was an amazing conference i'd like to repeat it uh, you know in at the university of winnipeg when we get when i get back there <laughs> in a physical form but even now like I, I have students who come they maybe watch the videos because it's archived at the university of winnipeg and they're like oh we didn't realize this had happened here like this is amazing are we doing this again because it really brought in elders it brought in community members it brought in you know activists that were all that were doing the work and gathering together in one room to say, 
to celebrate, but also to hear and listen to stories back and forth. And I think what came out of that was quite was quite beautiful. Our good friend Hiromi, <laughs> Hiromi was there and you know, she re-met Bokash was the last name. Marjorie. Yeah. They and they hadn't seen each other in years, apparently. And they had met each other again in Winnipeg. And I remember Hiromi taking me aside and saying, Is that? And I'm like, Yeah, that yes. They were there was like an instant kind of connection there. And so it was good to see that and see that kind of generational, all those generational links that we lose touch of, whether we're in the academy or in community or working or with networks. Another community too is, you know, the Sikh telling you that one of my two favorite events that I've done, they've been with actually the Sikh student associations, one in Ottawa, which was for Sikh day that they highlighted women. And I, it was, I think it might've been 2008, maybe seven. I don't remember. <laughs> and they asked me to read. And I think I've shared this somewhere. And I, I said, yes. And I'd been taken aside with this other, these two other writers at, who were also fairly young. And they said, I remember this older gentleman saying to us, you know, Sadharji saying to us, you know, don't read anything too radical or too political or too religious. And I was just like, okay, sure. Like, you're telling me this now? Like, do you know who I am? Like, okay. Um, do I know who I am? Yes. And I just read what I was going to read. And I just remember after that reading, and my mom and my brother were actually in the audience. And I remember this, this other kind of family came up to me afterwards and said, oh, that was a beautiful reading. And they, he seemed like the father seemed very perplexed. Like he was like, how did you learn to write? Like who gave you this idea to be an artist or to be a writer? And it was just such an odd question. And he's like, you know, we're, I'm telling my kids to be doctors and lawyers, and <laughs> right? Like architects or whatever else. And you're doing this writing. I just like, well, it's, I've all, and my, you know, I just said, I'm, I've always been writing and, you know, this was the kind of the, the correct, you know, form for it. And why shouldn't our, our people, our kids, our community be something other than doctors and lawyers go and be artists out there in the world. And of course, I think that's kind of, at, that's kind of like growing right now. Like I think there's a huge wave of Sikh South Asian activists and, and, and writers out there right now. So that wasn't the first one. And then the second one was here at the University of Calgary, where I, the Sikh Student Association asked me to do a reading, I think during April, so during Sikh Awareness Month. And it was a beautiful reading and it was full of all of these like young brown faces. And they were like, I thought I was actually failing because they were really quiet. <laughs> but then I realized like afterwards, they all kept coming up to me and thanking me and wanting to buy the book. And I'd only brought eight copies because I was like, they're not going to buy this. They're students. Like I, in my head, I was like, oh, they're students. Like, but they were amazed. They were like, oh, we didn't know you, you could do this. Right. Like, and here we are still talking about representation. Like we didn't know that you could be a writer. You could be published in a book. Like you could, it just, yeah. Like that kind of, they just hadn't seen it. And I was like, wow, like we're still there. If we're representation, we're just in can lit circles, Canadian literature circles and being academics, teachers, we're still at let's count the token people. And it just, that drives me crazy. And I know you've, you're the one of those pioneers or enough. <laughs> No, I'm not. <laughs> but yeah, those are two of my favorite sort of audience because I write for them. Like I, and that's what I had said. I'm like, I'm writing for you. This, when I'm thinking about Seva, when Seva came out, I was like, this book is for all of those 
South Asian kids, <laughs> diasporic kids, this is for them. And I had said that during that reading. I think that's kind of what, what got them. It's in terms of the two books, I know um, I, I want to talk about play as well, but in terms of the two books, was there any shift in your audience? This is a completely innocent question from someone who does not write. <laughs> I think it teaches a lot about audience. So we, we do that when we teach when we teach writing in the academic sense, but also yeah. in teaching creative writing, we, we talk a lot about the importance of recognizing that there is readership. And, and I'm passionate about this in teaching writing of any kind to any people. So I'm just really interested in, in the, in, in like in your own relationship to, is it to your own work and then your own sense of readership or audience? If it's shifted, I, I'm still writing for the same audience. Like in my head, when I'm writing, I'm writing to that South Asian diasporic experience. And whether it be an experience in terms of being a daughter or an aunt or a, like, I'm still, that's still who's at my table, my imaginary sort of, this is who I'm writing to. Whether it's even a, a South Asian queer audience, like they're still part of that table in my, in my mind because I want to have that for the next generations, right? Like that mentorship and succession and, you know, so that they see that it's there, that they can see themselves in something in, in works of works of art, in works of writing and art. And so my audience hasn't really, I don't know if it's, it hasn't shifted. I think it's probably, I hope, I would hope it's grown. I say that knowing that I have, I don't do a lot of media <laughs> around things. But I mean, Pressure Kirker Love Bomb was up for four awards in a year. And uh, that's kind of amazing to me. So, I mean, that's absolutely fantastic. But at the same time, like I have actively sent out my books to queer South Asian kids, <laughs> queer South Asian people who, you know, are part of like cer certain groups and they're so appreciative and they just like i didn't realize that this was in a that you could write in this way or that you could put this in a book or with the glossary and putting the words on pa on the page and there's still that kind of oh i could do this we could do something like this so i think that's really that's been actually fantastic when the book gets into the hands of, of students and, and people and what they pick up on is very different from what i think they're going to pick up on so so what, I, what I'd like to do before changing gears right now is ask you if you would like to read from either one or both of the books of poetry. Sure. Oh, well, I'll read just the first, the first little bit, just because we've been talking about recipes. Yeah, just because we've been talking about recipes. So this is, this is from Pressure Kirker Love Bomb, and it's poems. The first part of it is poems, not recipes. Poems pressure cooked, marinated, set on love. Poems instant pot famous, small bites. Hashtag love bombs. How to cook like your Punjabi mum. Hashtag without killing yourself. <laughs> 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 to make rotis, mix two cups of atta with one cup water. Add a bit of olive oil or ghee to soften the dough. Knead dough until your upper biceps constricts, your triceps relax. Beads of sweat form on your forehead. Stop, repeat, until dough releases off your fingers. Let the dough rest. You do not rest. Start the dal. Soak dry lentils overnight. In the morning, wash lentils, drain water, not lentils. Let the water run clear. Add water again. Do not worry about wasting water. It comes out of the tap in abundance. Make sure the lentils are covered in water. Add a pinch of salt set to boil for 15 minutes. 
do not leave the kitchen. Hashtag do not nap while cooking. I rinse yellow lentils and set them to boil. After one hour, the water evaporates. After two, let the lentils fuse to the bottom of the pot. After three, in the middle of my beauty rest, the smoke detector beeps an alarm clock. The firefighter said I was lucky to be alive. Purchase a timer, a cute one in the shape of a strawberry or apple. Hang it around your neck if you plan to nap while cooking. Form a dough ball, roughly palm size. Slap it back and forth as you would a snowball. Take the dough ball between your thumb and index finger. Pinch into flat circles. The flatter, the better. As you are crimping, notice how the dust sprinkles on the counter below. This is important. Take up your rolling pin. Yes, the one your mother beat you with. <laughs> Hashtag kitchen bat, not your friend. The rolling pin is your mom's best friend for a reason. Think of it as a bat. Never argue with anyone in the kitchen. If you're living on your own, a rolling pin makes a good weapon to keep under your bed. Just remember it's a rolling pin and it might roll from under your bed. If you stumble and fall and hit your head on the hardwood floor, give yourself a concussion. The paramedic will say, you're lucky to be alive. Better yet, keep a carbon under your bed. Roll out the dough balls into round, even circles. The thinner, the better. Make your mom proud. The trick to keep the dough moving in place and tenderly larging out. Light on the rolling pin, squeeze, slightly squeeze. Next, slap the atta circle on the taba. Let it darken, then flip. No need for a chimta. Dough on your fingertips will form a second skin and protect from burns. On the jolly, rotis will puff up with steam. Set rotis on a tea towel, butter one side. Arrange the second roti on top. It will be buttered by the first. Hashtag adulting burns. If you have a chimta, great. Pierce a hole in the roti, let steam out. But remember to quickly turn the deflating roti away from yourself. The steam will scald you. If you're burnt, do not, I repeat, do not put butter on the hurt, especially the butter next to the stove. Remove the roti from the jolly, nurse your ego with a cold cloth. Add to the lentils, chopped onions, haldi, garam masala, harimich, and salt, for, and simmer for 10 minutes. Set the table with thalis, homemade rotis, and dal. Now you can eat. Now you are hashtag ready for marriage. <laughs> And then hashtag ready for marriage, which is crossed out. If you find this all much too much, then do what Punjabi housewives do. Buy pre-made rotis <laughs> frozen, vacuum sealed, sag paneer, black dal, kofta with curry. Find it in the pre-packaged aisle with jars of curry, butter, chicken sauce. Canadian campers call it magic Indian food. I call it hashtag ready for life. <laughs> That's great. That's wonderful. I was going to ask you to read something else, but I, before you do so, one thing that I, I remember a lot about is your dissertation. And who are you calling Car Princess, your PhD dissertation. And in Theba, more than in Pressure Cooker Love Bomb, you also talk about your talk about your research on the turban and mm. what that's about whether you're still working on it and how how that how that's inflected in your creative work please <laughs> <laughs> go Sharon Paul well yes like so I started the idea for the 
the turban be, being a symbol, that symbol of South Asianness, the, the Sikh symbol, right? It's one of the, it's, it's not actually one of the five Ks, but it really is because it's long hair, it's Gesh, right? And keeping hair tied up. And well, for Seva, for example, I used the five Ks in Seva and I structured it so that each section would have, so Gesh is one section, which is hair. Peshera is the second, which is a, which are homemade underwear. Karpan is, is another section, which is the dagger. She's the dagger that people wear. The Ganga, which is a small comb. Kara, which is a bangle. And I had been working on that collection for many years. And the turban becomes this kind of, I think now I'm, I'm, well, I'm trying to reflect because now the turban has come this, become this kind of playful symbol that I get to use in certain aspects. It's been queered in the play that you had referenced, Bollywood Basement Boutique. There is a drag performer who is wearing a turban and possibly, and yeah, it's become, a, it's, it's kind of changed over time. And when I was looking at the turban in my PhD dissertation and a little bit in my master's when I was at the UC in Shauna Singh Baldwin's work, how, the, how, the, how does that turban get used by women? Do women wear turbans? And I remember saying that in a, in a class at, the, at York University in my PhD and professor saying, Dr. Lee saying, well, that's not true. I've never really seen a woman wearing a turban before in like in a real, in a religious identity. And of course, you know, a couple of weeks later, she apologized because she had then like had seen women wearing turbans on campus and they just were not visible to her. So that really sparked the PhD dissertation to start thinking about how South Asian women are seen. How are we not seen if we're wearing certain items and garments? How are the men seen differently, right? With with long beards and, and turbans. And so, of course, you know, that dissertation looks at poetry. It looks at film, like uh, Bollywood films. There was a particular film that a woman would switch, use a turban and a beard, would put on a beard and, you know, play a masculine role. Uh, and that had, that had come out, I think, in late in 2020 or 2010. And so, you know, all of these, but these are sort of, now that I look back at that, I think these are just sort of like bubbling up moments, right? Like these are just like little ripples that have now led to like, you know, social media platforms where there are so many women with turbans, so many women who are taking those symbols up and men who are also taking that up in, a, in whether it be um, in a highly religious way or in a, in a kind of sense, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna wear, wear these symbols as a, a sense of identity. Yeah. So I think those are, when I look back now, I think, wow, like I was kind of just at the cusp of things coming up, right? Like things were sort of bubbling up and yeah, I, yeah, I guess it would be good to finish that collection of essays <laughs> uh, eventually. Yeah. But at the same time, I think, you know, you might even just to go back to Seva, like one of the poems in here that, you know, really gets people, it, you know, is is amputee, which is where the the man comes into the into the hair salon and and cuts his hair, and you know that kind of that always get, that always gets people because it's like oh right like there's this moment of of not wanting to to participate in this kind of you know religious endowment or religious practice yeah so yeah. it's that's still heavily on my mind because I think there's so many conversations to be had around it and I know that it's happening in 
Sikh religious circles, like Sikh studies. I know it's a huge, you know, it's, uh, trying to get off the ground at the University of Calgary. But I've always asked, like, we need to involve everybody at the table to have those kind of conversations. And why is it that we put pressure on kids? Because like, I felt that pressure as a kid to keep my hair and to not, you know, pluck my eyebrows or like shave my legs or like, you know, what God was watching and oh my gosh. And, you know, this little hairy ball of, you know, <laughs> running around and just feeling completely self-conscious the whole time. Right. And I just, I always remember that as a little kid and think, wow, like, and I remember, you know, at the end of Seva, I write that one day I'll get out of here. Like one day I'll be able to make my own decisions and figure things out for myself. And that never, that has never left me that you could still be Sikh and you can still cut your hair and you can still participate and you can still be part of these communities. You could still be queer. You could still, you, you could be all of these things, hold all of these things together that make you up and still belong and feel loved and be part of communities and, you know, making things hopefully better for other generations to come. So body, you're talking about, you know, <laughs> the, the relate, uh, you know, our, our relationship to how our bodies are viewed, how we experience them. And I was thinking of the amputee poem, actually, and in part because it reminded me of a, a mystery show that I'm watching on Australian Broadcasting Corporation, in which there's a scene in one of the episodes in which a, a young Sikh teenager goes through, and maybe, I hope I don't have the wrong show, a young Sikh teenager goes through this experience of deciding that he's going to cut his hair and stop wearing his turban. And the, the way that it's, it's filmed is actually very, very affecting. Anyway, my question is about how has your creative activist teaching practice changed with your relationship to your body, how you feel it being represented? How has that changed with youth? How has it changed with aging? <laughs> I'm not saying you're aging. <laughs> you better not be. <laughs> um, I'm still younger than you, Aruna. <laughs> I know you will always be younger than me, significantly. <laughs> we had figured that out, right? But I, you were, you were older, and then Larissa's 10 years younger than you, and then I'm 10 years younger than Larissa. Thank you, Sarah and Paul. For you're suggest. welcome. Uh, this, this needs to be edited out, Joshua Whitehead. <laughs> or Mahmoud, who's ever doing the editing. Okay. Don't do it. Leave it in there. Yeah, we had figured that out, right? Because I, I think it's important to have, you know, those kind of generational talks, right? Because mm -hmm. we need to think about them. Yeah. And in terms of bodies, like I know you, ha you have had a lot of uh, body stuff going on. I think, though, I'm going to just... I think my sense of my body though has come from my theater theater degree because I have always seen myself as like my theater degree and the education degree because I knew I had a bit of a big 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 voice I, I do know that but when I took a theater degree it it taught me how to be present in a classroom and I will never forget one of the profs at UW saying you have this kind of like commanding voice like search it like I'm gonna tell you know like and, and I do like I, I can I can switch it on and off and there is this kind of I can do it especially if I'm the in the presence of grade seven kids but at the same time I think theater really helped me with that to see myself outside of myself and to make sure that like I know how to the command of room whether I do that well or not whatever but at least I feel like I've done it fairly well 
And then also in terms of performing, like I always have to practice performance. Like I practice reading poems out loud. I have to practice reading anything. If I'm doing something, reading someone's bio or anything like that, I, I constantly have to do that and practice it. So that it's not just like, oh, you just spend five minutes and it's done or whatever. It's like, it takes a lot of time and practice in, in doing that. And I think being in the classroom. But in the last little while, just because I've been thinking about this play and writing a play, that's also come up too, because, you know, in terms of representation, I was like, wow, we don't really see a lot of, we don't see brown bodies on stage on like, on the, you know, whether it's Theatre Calgary, Prairie Theatre Exchange, Manitoba Theatre, you know, like, we don't really see that. And I was like, you know, we need to, we need, we need a lot more of that. And we need to be able to represent ourselves in, in all the arts. And so I think, you know, it kind of goes back to theater. It goes back to thinking about myself in, in the classroom as a, as a South Asian woman, you know, standing in front of a classroom or in the Zoom square or whatever, and really taking that up and knowing that I'm probably one of three, four people of color that these students might ever see. And so that weighs a lot on me to make sure that teaching well becomes really important I think too taking care of your body as well like we we try to say that a lot you know get up move around exercise drink well (laughs) so let's finish up let's finish up a bit with the basement Bollywood boutique because that's a change in genre for you and some of the things that you talked about when we were watching that watching that reading the stage reading you talked about that shift how you came to uh, create that piece and with that I'm going to ask you another question about technology since you've raised it so it's your fault Um, (laughs) about how your how your practice your creative practice or any other have changed with technology and I'm going to add that because this is a, a question that I've stolen from from a template but how how has that changed with technology but also during COVID so technology COVID mm-hmm. and Basement Bollywood Boutique? Well, Basement Bollywood Boutique, like the play itself, I had been writing a couple of years ago. I started writing some, like I started writing it in physically in, in a coffee shop in Phil and Sebastian's on 4th Street. And I was waiting for Micheline because Micheline was the editor of Frontenac House, but also a pressure cooker love bomb. And we were going through, we were meeting for coffee and I would go there early and all of a sudden I started writing this play and I've only now sort of remembered that I had a play, like I had a, a drama degree, right? Like I just, you know, somehow you just, I don't know what it is, but sometimes you kind of forget parts of your life and like, wow, I've done a lot. And then you're just like, oh, right. I used to be in theater. That's right. But the play actually, I had written it out, like physically had like, this is like, you won't be able to read it or see it or, but I had actually staged it all. Like I had taken my book and I had written it out and I started writing it. And yeah, I started writing it and it's called, it was called something different in my, in my little, you know, yellow book here, but I, I started writing it out and like, really, I visualized it as a, as a play. And all of a sudden these characters are just started popping up and talking and doing stuff. And I was like, oh, this was, oh, this is fun. Like, this was like a fun new genre. Like I was kind of open to writing anything. Cause I had sort of started, you know, like the page before that is there's a really bad poem on there. And I was like, well, that's, it's not a poem. It's, it's begging to be something else. So I thought, okay, well, let's, let's make this happen. And then I was, you know, I had written it out. And then at 
when I got the gig as the writer in residence, I was just typing it out. So I'd basically taken the book and had left it for probably a year when, when I was teaching in Winnipeg. And then when I had some time to sort of decompress and like, think about what I, what my next projects were going to be, I had found this book and I said, okay, I'm going to now type this out. And so I started typing it out at the university of Calgary. So in that writer in residence. And then when COVID hit, I'd gone to the university to like get everything off that computer and like get the, all the hard drives and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, bring it here, bring it home. And I just kept going with it. Right. And like kept writing little bits and pieces of it. And yeah. And then it, it kind of turned into something else. Cause in theater Calgary put out this call and I'd given it to Leisha to read and change the title to, you know, Bollywood Basement Boutique, played around the, okay, is that the right title? And, you know, all that kind of stuff. And lo and behold, it probably is the right title. And yeah, it kind of, kind of sort of blossomed from there. And I'm really excited about it. Like it's, (laughs) I would like, I like, it's, it's exciting to be writing something new in a whole other genre and to be thinking about putting it on stage. And so when I saw the, like the, the actors and the reader and the, the actors and the director who were all from various South Asian backgrounds, I was, I was floored. And I was just like, oh, this is fantastic. This is great. This is exactly what we want to see on stage and like in workrooms and in all the spaces. And it was interesting in that reading in that whole week of workshops, the kinds of things that they picked up and didn't pick up on. And in that, I think, you know, being really specific has come up, like, you know, making it really, you know, is this a sort of pan-Asian, pan-South Asian play, right? Like, so that everyone's going to pick up on, or is it going to be very specific to the Sikh community? There'll be, I, I think there's some play in there, but of course the experience of being a diasporic Sikh person, you know, Sikh person living in, whether it's Calgary, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, like in the prairies, because that's really where I, I've set, centered it. We've all had this kind of the same experience going to look for Indian outfits or clothing or food or anything. And it's in these like weird little like neighborhoods in the basement, in a corner store, like in the back room, you have to go get the, the dolls over there or whatever you may have, right? Like there was a time when it wasn't as readily available as things are now, right? Like when you go to the Northeast or even go to Superstore or Safeway or co-op, you're going to, you're going to find a variety of stuff. But back in what, early nineties to you, it wasn't as, as available. And so I really wanted to sort of honor that time period. It was, it's, that's been kind of a little difficult to do, but I really wanted to honor that. Like you and I, like, I remember, <laughs> I think I told you this the other day, like when it was your 50th, remember it was your 50th birthday and we were going to have a party and you really wanted to, you're like, okay, I want to go and get a really nice Slovak chemise and wear that for your 50th birthday. So we went to the Northeast and it didn't have, it didn't, we found this beautiful piece. You had to go try it on in some like back corner. <laughs> And it didn't have um, sleeves and he wanted sleeves on it. And the woman's like, you have to go to this person's house to go, right? Like it was just, I was remembering that too. And I was like, that was so funny. Like, and I remember sitting there in the car waiting for you and you just walking out of that person's house, shaking your head and just, and then he had like this little like, <laughs> they didn't even give you a garment bag. They had just put it in a, like a, like plastic bag. And I was, 
it just it, it makes me laugh but also like th these are the moments that we've all had right and right like we've all had these moments and like it, it's i think it's better now like i think there are boutiques that are like above ground and have like tailors <laughs> and all of those things but even just back then they didn't have those things and so like you're you're, you're if you wanted to buy the buy outfits and stuff you were subjected to you know going to people's basements or going to a friend of a friend who's had a kitty party somewhere and you're just like okay yeah sure let's try this on yeah that's where the the play comes in covid but covid has in in that reading it was great because one of the sort of blessings of that i think zach and stafford from theater calgary you know said it that they would not have been able to bring everybody in. So we had an actress from New York, uh, one from Vancouver, two from Vancouver, Calgary, of course, Toronto, and, you know, to fly everybody in for a week of workshops, that might not have happened. So good for them for having it, reaching out to those people, but also it really says a lot that we, we still have to do a lot of that work. These like organizations, arts organizations, definitely still have to do a lot of work in representation as well. So I'm going to ask you a political question. Not, not that these haven't been political, <laughs> but before I do that, to conclude, I thought it would, would be good if we could have another reading, either from Sevo or Pressure Cooker. And it can, it can be anything, really. I'll leave that up to you. And then I'm going to ask you a little bit about anti-racism. Oh, just a little bit, eh? <laughs> <laughs> to conclude. To conclude. You know what? I'll read Amputee since we've been talking about yeah. it. Okay, so this is Seva, and this comes from the Gesh section. And this is, um, this is the last in the five. So Amputee. A middle-aged Sikh man walked in without an appointment. She thought he was very tall until he unwound his turban in the middle of the salon. His mane, thick, clean silk down to his tailbone, a hairdresser's dream. He sat down on it and said, cut it off. She asked him if he was sure. He nodded and did not say a word. She severed his hair at the nape of his neck. She would give it to the Cancer Society to make into wigs. He smiled and kept his eyes on his eyes in the mirror, pleased that his sacrifice would help someone else, a very Sikh thing to do. He did not touch his head when he got up from the chair. He looked shorter, did not tip her, did not know it was the custom and never came back for a trim. So that's amputee. I'll read uh, Basement Bollywood <clears throat> basement so okay so when I was coming up with the title for Bollywood Basement Boutique and actually I didn't come up with the title full disclosure Leisha came up with the title and then gave it to me so, <laughs> but this one is my title Basement Bollywood Porn and I actually had to stop myself several times during the workshop and all that kind of stuff saying basement Bollywood porn because the play is not about porn. Uh, okay, so basement Bollywood porn. <laughs> I'm at a party. Porn is on in the basement. Girls and boys laugh and all I can think about is the plot of a Sikh porn movie. Typical beginning. Boy meets girl with parents and the parents disappear into the other living room. They are left to hold hands and almost kiss just like in all the Bollywood movies. 
except in this script they really do kiss and he touches her she smiles she touches him and there's music of course and they retreat to the girl's bedroom her clothes come off and there's no sexy Victoria's secret panties here it's all about the nala and being tied up a nodding knots is not easy at the best of times especially when you have to go to the bathroom sort of the same feeling so they rip off each other's kashara and well i'm sure you've seen a few after all when we're naked we pretty much do it the same way except so there i am writing the script for my Sikh porn movie when i'm thrown into the closet with what's his name it's dark and i can feel fur and then a hand and i shriek bang into the door fall face first onto the floor the girls ask what he did and i shrug and they all laugh and call me a nun Thank you. That's great. It, that is one of my favorite poems, actually. <laughs> so there okay. you go. Maybe this will, maybe the play will turn into a Sikh porn movie. Who knows? <laughs> it, it could. It's got enough humor in it. <laughs> uh, so finally, I'm going to ask you, it's been a terrible year because of COVID. It's yeah. also been in many ways a horrifying year and a wake up call year since the murder of George Floyd, not that that was the first instance of anti-Black racism. There, there have been, it's been the recent incidents of the murders in Atlanta. And of course, all of us know from the work of other creative and critical practitioners, the work of people like Tasha Hubbard, a lot of the work of our colleagues, Larissa, for instance, and the work that people have been doing sort of tirelessly for a long time, that seems to be being listened to at times, I would say in the last year. So I'm going to ask you, because we were having a conversation before we started having this, this recorded talk about how, what is the work like of doing anti-racism in the academy? Uh oh, <laughs> or, and, or, um, in creative communities, because we've had a lot of discussions around that in terms of everything from cultural appropriation to what does it mean to be violent in writing in terms of racism. So I'm going to leave that open-ended for you, but I know that for, for many of us as uh, BIPOC folks, many of us, it's been a, a very, very difficult year to try and negotiate whether we can invest in what a lot of people are seeing as progress. And I won't yeah. say what, who those people are. Um, <laughs> so chat away about, <laughs> about, oh, about this cultural moment. Oh, our cultural moment. Well, I mean, you could say a lot about this, Aruna, because, you know, I, you know, I, I stand here on your shoulders, on Larissa's, on Sharon Prue's, on all the, you know, Indigenous people's activists writers uh, artists who have done lots of this have done lots of this work i think to be in this in this moment at this time okay i'll start with the arts so the arts are can lit canadian literature is a constantly white space we've all known this writing through race you know larissa all of all of those moments if you don't know find out I'm not going to tell you, Aruna's not going to tell you, go do your research, <laughs> first of all. And then second, in the arts organizations, it's time to start calling people out. 
and I and I mean I mean that in such a strong way. I have been asking. I'm sitting as poetry editor right now for Contemporary Verse Tune, which is a poetry journal that has been going on for 40 plus years. It has it has a diverse board on there right now. It has uh, we've had poetry editors who are diverse on our on our board on our committees, and I'm committed when I take over as editor in July that we are always going to have that and maintain that and ask our guest editors, for example, to make sure that you have BIPOC voices, two-spirited voices. Is there someone that you can find? Can we bring all of those people up together? Because if, we, if I don't do that work, who, who, who will do the work? Because the default is always white. The power is always white. And so, you know, when I ask poetry editors who are young, these are young people. These are not, these are people who are in, you know, let's say 35 and under. And, you know, when I say to them, well, it's great that, you know, if you want to do an issue on this, this and this, but we have it, you want to have guest editors or if you want to have, you know, interviews, we need to do a count. We need to f make sure that we are representing the whole gamut of that organization or that theme or topic or and that's really important that work recently we had the two spirit queer people of color issue which actually joshua whitehead edited and it was a it's a fabulous collection of work and he brought on board a lot of the people that he knows and he and he asked um queer people of color and two-spirited writers if they wanted to submit to this collection and that you know that's the work that's you know saying here's you know opening the door and saying not just opening the door but saying here's the resources here's what we can do you know let's let's do that together and you know hopefully that was you know a, a positive experience for him and for for other uh, writers in that collection it's not the first time cv2 has done you know a queer collection it has uh, it has done a whole issue a couple of years back so the in the arts it's a constant, it's a constant asking who's at the table, who's at your board, who's on your staff. Do you have BIPOC voices? Do you have two spirited voices? Do you have indigenous writers? And if you're asking for content constantly from BIPOC voices and BIPOC people, two spirited people and indigenous people, do you have them on your board? Are you, it's not just about payment anymore. It's not just about like here, pay me to do these things. It's, it, was, it was never about that. But it's about moving over and making space and saying, here's how, here's how you can do this. Or if they're not interested in that, here's how we can fund this in this particular way. So that stuff, I mean, you know, <laughs> I've been to Art Summit, which was in Montreal a couple of years ago. And Julie Nigam, who invited me to that panel. And I remember sitting there and, and saying to everybody, count how many board members you have, count how many people of color you have on your committees, on your, on your organizations, on your, in, in the symphony, in the orchestra, in the, right, in the opera, in all of those places. That's where you start. And I know it sounds horrible, but it's, you know, what we did in the 80s or what you guys did in the 80s count it's just, it's as simple as that right like and if you've got zero don't put little squares and boxes on your on your you know oh we're gonna support this if i ever see that i will i will lose it because that is not support quite frankly that is not support what is support is going to your hiring committees and saying we need we need to hire in clusters and we need five black voices at the table we need five indigenous voices at this table we need to go out and find them and we need to hire them 
and give them money and support and not just hire them and say, okay, well, here's, you know, here you go. It's about like also providing all the resources and the support for that. We're, we're constantly doing, constantly doing account. And, you know, in my teaching career in the, so I'll just go into the academy. I teach intro, intro to women and gender studies. And that's the one assignment where I ask students and it's been hard because of COVID, but some students have been really, so I've got great students who think outside the box. So one of the assignments is, you know, go into other classrooms, go into your other workplaces. Your, if, so if there was no COVID, they would go to other classes or, you know, in their lives, in their, you know, their mosques or, you know, churches or wherever they are, wherever they find themselves and do a count. How many people of color? How many, how many women do you see? How many men of color? How many, right? Like, and recently I've just been, I've been adding trans and that's actually like a spark of a conversation to people, right? Non-binary, just someone introduced themselves to you as they or them, right? In, in terms of their pronouns. And I've asked them to do a count and I get a lot of pushback from that assignment for mostly white students who say they're uncomfortable doing it. They're like, well, why should I, I, you know, I love everyone as a human being and I want to get to know them. And I'm like, yes, but that's because you're, you've got white passing skin and the power always remains with you. So it's uncomfortable for you to go and do a count. And I, I mean, I kind of ham it up a little bit and say, you know, don't just stand there and do, you know, counting everyone and telling everyone, right? Like just, you know, just go and just put the, that vision, put that lens on and see what you see, who has the power. You know, um, I remember one, or, or a student a while back said, you know, they worked at Tim Hortons and they were front staff. So they were at the front of the, the staff, face staff or customer facing. They were white and the cleaning staff and everyone making all the things were all people of color. So that was like, at first they thought, oh no, I'm, and then they realized the shifts. And that's a eye open, again, that's an eye opening assignment. And I still get pushback from, from students and particularly white students who say, this makes me uncomfortable. And I say, I feel like it's uncomfortable me walking into all those spaces. Think about how uncomfortable your other colleagues, your black colleagues, your indigenous colleagues, your, how uncomfortable they are going into those white spaces. Yeah, so I, I do get a, a bit of pushback from that assignment, but it's still necessary. It's still a necessary assignment because we still have, I'm the only person of color in my department as a, at, with a, with a tenure track position, right? So there are other people listed, but they're not tenure track. So we know how precarious those kind of work that work is. Yeah. So that's, you know, <laughs> the academy, <laughs> all that anti-racist, anti-racist work. I've, I sit on committees. I'm, I'm the chair of the pride committee. I sit on that committee because I, I want to make sure that we honor two spirited people. Manitoba, um, the two-spirited people of Manitoba, and we raise that flag every year with, in relation with two-spirited Manitoba, with, with the with Elder Albert McLeod, and also with queer people of color to make sure that those are the two things that we we honor in terms of the in terms of pride. The flags are there, and we constantly need to be asking those questions. The academy, as you know, Aruna, and you have lived it a lot longer is a highly racist environment are it's really the microaggressions the macroaggressions that we receive when students say to me oh i didn't realize you can i thought you were, you had a foreign name so like that you may not speak english <laughs> right like 
that one floors me every time. I'm like, yes. you know, a, a quick little Google search will, you know, tell you. And some students are really comfortable in their own skin to even just say that straight to you. And, and you just kind of stand there and go, right. Yeah, I guess I foreign sounding name. I wonder what that means. But all of those microaggressions, right? Like they're all the little cuts and bruises and yeah, what's the longevity? I always think, you know, I think of you, I think of, you know, Larissa, I think of Arun, PhD supervisor at York, you know, and her, her husband Alok, I think about him, you know, like these are generational people who have put in the good fight, you know, in, in a quiet way, like these are not like, you know, large, <laughs> in your face kind of activists, they're quietly doing the work. And, you know, you say that I'm kind of out there. <laughs> in terms of, But I'm also quietly doing the work, right, making those pathways for the ne that next generation, however, they want to do that. I, I hope I am like, I, I really hope that I'm doing that correctly. I do stop a lot and go, okay, is this going to work? And what do I need to make it work? And if it's too much, then I, I, I stop or I figure out how to get a team involved. How do, I, how do I gather more people together? Because that's one thing I did learn from that conference is that it's a lot easier to do work when you have, when you have the elders involved and you have community members at the table and you have your, your academic colleagues and everyone sort of at the same table working together and you know, pointing things out and saying, you know, we do, we, here's a huge gap. We do not have a black feminist scholar on campus. This is a problem, right? And, you know, not, not only do we need one, we need 10, like across the board. That's another thing too, is asking for a lot more than you need, right? Like, I think that's a good, fem that's always a good feminist practice for sure. I think too, thinking about, you know, Sarah Ahmed, right? And making sure our feminist practices are, are ground in a killjoy in being that killjoy like sometimes you just have to be that killjoy and point it out to people you know sitting on these diversity committees and and that kind of thing holding accountable your university and saying this is nonsense and and hope hope that you know your colleagues are gonna support you but i i often just do and say things because i'm like i've got nothing to lose at this point right i've got a tenure track position i've been blessed with this this much power for those of you who can't see me i'm holding my hands up like this much like you know squishing your head kind of like <laughs> i've got this much power and i'm going to use it <laughs> so you might as well tenure track positions allow for that right it is lonely but at the same time i've got you and i've got larissa <laughs> community outside of you know uh larger larger spaces and we need to build on that too and given create our own networks. And that's also important. But I, I do think that anti-racism work is still being fueled by us and, and it's not done. It won't be done until there's representation across the board. Like it, it will not be done. And yeah, we can celebrate all we want, rah, rah, rah. But at the same time, the proof is in the next five years. The proof is in who's being hired in the next five years. Cause that's where real change happens. Absolutely. <laughs> We'll see. I mean, you taught me well, Aruna. <laughs> you, you and everyone else. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, I, we have to do this. We end up doing this work and how to not, I, I think how to keep the stamina going though, is creating community and creating space for, for others to learn as well. So I, I think I've, I've gotten 
away with a few things because I've had a lot of student support and a lot of support by BIPOC students in particular. And, you know, they've done some of the heavy lifting as well. So I think that in supporting back and forth in the arts community, there is also that kind of heavy lifting from other artists who are BIPOC artists. I have a, a bit of a network now where I can email them and say, this is what's going on. We need to band together and send emails back and, you know, we can, we can do that much and hopefully the word gets out. But yeah, all of that anti-racism work, the academic work, the arts work, it's all based around anti-racism and decolonizing. But at the moment, in this moment, I think anti-racism is, is the key at the moment because of what's going on. And I think you, you raised earlier to the importance of uh, remembering those histories and that that's something that I'm quite passionate and sometimes mm -hmm. grumpy about is that this is work that's been going on for a long time and we don't we don't pay attention to that archive sometimes so I think that's because, go ahead sorry not to interrupt but like it's hard to find that archive when you know when I say to students like oh have you, do you know about writing through race do you know about Roy Mickey do you know about right all of these historical moments that all come together some of them have they haven't they don't know and you're like okay listen if you're going to step into Cadillac, for example do you know these these histories these are important to remember these are important to know and it's sending them in those those directions and sometimes it's 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 easier in a way now because there is we do have online archives like rug magazine for example is, is online you know, when we did our, our conference, we made sure everything was online so that people can access it. So th there are things that makes it a tiny bit easier that you don't have to, you know, wait in the mail for, you know, a magazine to show up or something else to show up. But at the same time, it's reading through those histories and, and learning from them. Yeah. yeah. And I think some of the work that has been done is, has been done by students doing theses and those have not been, they're available, but they haven't been published. So that work, the archival work and realizing that this is cyclical and that those histories are maybe our responsibilities as academics and um, activist academics is to bring those into the light more and keep reminding people that this is not the first time that we, we have been having these conversations. Yeah, and that we have gathered. So I have a, an RA at the moment, a research associate, and she's, she finished her, her master's at the University of Winnipeg in the cultural studies department or in, our, in the MA program. And one of the things that I've said to her is, okay, we've got a little bit of time together to work together. Let's hear, here's what I'm thinking about. And, and in the last year, there was all this activism going on in Winnipeg. So justice for Black Lives Matter, the CMHR, which is the Canadian Human Rights uh, Museum, the Stella's Restaurant, Not My Stella's Campaign. These, <laughs> these were all students of mine who were part of these organizings. And so it, it even not, you know, Stop Lying CMHR. And so I, I, I said, we, you know, now is the time to capture these in a way. So let's come, let's come together and figure out a collection of some sort. And it doesn't have to be academic speak. I, I don't want it to be something where nobody can read it you know like <laughs> that was another thing too like i don't think people realize that if you went through the academy like i certainly aruna you have gone through this um i know because you've shared it with me but 
that, that academic way of speaking, that Spivakian, homie Baba, oh my God, I can't even believe I've just mentioned his name, <laughs> right? Writing that post-colonial jargony, which was so complicated. And I, I had to learn how to think and write in that way. And it was, I was like, who's going to read this? <laughs> Nobody. Like, <laughs> And I remember just thinking to myself, like, I, you know, the bell hooks, the Audre Lorde, like, you know, those feminists were like, you know, write for community, write for your community that you want to have out in the world. And so, you know, this is what I've said to my RA is like, okay, we're going to put this collection together because it, it has been a moment in time. And I want it to come from the organizers of all of these groups, because whether you got, whether these students go on to do masters or PhDs or whatever, I'm like, I need, I want you to remember this because th th what will happen is we'll have to do this again. There will be another gathering mm -hmm. and another one because Rodney King was my lifetime. That, that beating happened when I was a, a young person. Slavery was not that long ago. Like let's, so I, I think that there, we need to remember these things. And with technology that we have right now, it's fleeting right? Like you, yes, so you can, on one hand, I want to praise it and say it's there, it's accessible, but at the same time, it's also fleeting, right? Like if we don't take the time to, I'm not saying print everything out, although that's what I do. <laughs> it's also, we need to, we need to make sure it's there in the archive. And so that's one of the projects for the summer. And in my head, I guess I've sort of, you know, went, okay, that's the academic project to put something together with those students to say, this is how we can make this academic work and put this, put this collection together so that we can always remember that. So they have, because they had a, a heavy hand in organizing all of that. The only connection I have to all of that was that at some point I taught them. Oh, there's a dog howling outside. I think maybe, no, it's a different dog. I think the dog is saying, you've been talking a long time. Um, <laughs> Probably. And we have, and we have been. So um, I would like to thank you for giving us some of your time today. Um, quite a lot of your time today actually <laughs> anything that for had, you aruna <laughs> even anything for me so can you make me some doll yeah sure <laughs> and not go to sleep and not not yeah make sure you don't burn the house down don't burn the house down thank you so much We hope you enjoyed this interview of Sharon Paul Rupry by Runa Sarvastava. I'm Mark Herman Lynch, and you're listening to Tea House Talks. We recognize the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stokel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Mahmoud Ababne, Paul Meunier, Ryan Stern, Shu Yun Yu, Shazia Hafiz, and me. Our music is Monarch of the Streets by Loyalty Freak Music. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check out our website at www.teahouse.ca. That is T-I-A-House.ca. If you'd like to be in touch, send us an email at teahouseyyc at gmail.com. That is T-I-A-House-Y-Y-C at gmail.com. Thank you again so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.